We're going to launch into God's Word now. And as you guys know, we've been going through the Gospel of John verse by verse. We're now in the section of John that is recounting the Easter story, the Easter narrative. So I would invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 18, verse 28. John 18, 28 is where we're going to be today. And we're kind of camping out in the Easter story for a few weeks, just looking at it in little snippets. But the reason we're doing this is because we can take a little bit of a longer look at stuff. Because this Easter narrative, this, as we said last week, is the greatest story ever told. Amen? In fact, it's more than a story. The Easter narrative is the greatest, most important, impactful truth you will ever wrap your hands around in this life, and it positions you for the next life. It's that important. So it's a joy to be in it with you guys. And as we open to John 18, 28, we're going to start reading this in just a second. When we unpack it today, though, I just wanted to say by way of housekeeping, we're going we're gonna to just camp out in this Easter narrative. We're also going to do some sidebars today and some bonus points. Anybody like bonus points? Because you're having them today. We're going to have a number of them. So let's read together. First of all, what we've just seen so far in the Easter narrative, Jesus has gone out with his disciples. They're in and around Jerusalem. They've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has there been betrayed by Judas, a former friend. Jesus has been arrested and treated like a criminal, even though he's done nothing wrong. He's completely innocent. He's been led before the Jewish leaders and questioned and really treated as though he was this terrible criminal. And that's where we pick up the account today. John 18, 28, here it is. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, he was the high priest, we talked about him last week, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the what? Truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Lot going on there. So let's start carving this out. The first thing we're going to do, we're going to talk about a little bit of history. How many of you guys liked history in school? I loved it. I thought it was great. Sidebar, it kind of depends on how good of a teacher you had, I think. 
Yeah. How many of you did not like history in school? Okay. All right. But you lived to tell about it. It was all right. I promise this will be painless. And the reason we got to talk about the history is because if we don't talk about this, we're, we're going to fail to really plumb the depths of all that Jesus did and all that Jesus went through for us. The history is really, really important here. So will you bear with me for a couple of minutes? Okay, we're doing it anyway. It says in verse 28 that they, the Jewish leaders, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, to the governor's headquarters. Now, the governor is not talking about a Jewish person. That's the Roman governor. Somebody say Roman. You guys need to know and understand that at this time in the history of Israel, the nation of Israel was being ruled over, lorded over by the Roman Empire. How many of you have heard of the Roman Empire? Well, that's the same Roman Empire we're talking about here. The Roman Empire originated in Rome, shockingly, and they started expanding beyond there, taking territory, forming provinces, collecting taxes, all you know the empire things that you do, right? And they first arrived in the area of Israel, Jerusalem, this region, as early as 63 B.C., so that's like 80 or 90 years before this Easter account's taking place, okay? Remember that? 80 or 90 years. And their presence in this region sort of varied as time went on. It started out with, here we are, we're the Romans. Don't mind us, we're just here to take all your money and collect taxes and all that stuff. But over time, their presence increased. And by AD 6, 6 AD, this area had become a full Roman province. It was called Judea. So 6 AD, this is now in the lifetime of Jesus, the Romans have fully taken over. The Jewish people, this was their historic homeland, um, the promised land, they were in charge there, they made the rules, they could kind of do whatever they wanted, but now the Romans are in control, and the Jews are starting to kind of lose some of their political abilities, and one of the things they lost was the ability to legally put people to death. That happened in AD 28. That's about five years before what we're reading in John 18. Okay, you getting all that? The Romans are there. They've taken away legally the right for Jewish people to put someone to death. So in order to put Jesus to death here, which is what they want to do, they had to go through the Romans. Okay, with me so far? Okay, they wanted Jesus to die because of blasphemy. Well, partly they were also jealous of him, but their specified reason, it says in John 10, 33, they said, we're going to kill you because you being a man, make yourself to be God. That's blasphemy. Now the Romans, they don't care about the Jewish religion, Jewish faith, Jewish traditions. So if the Jewish leaders had come to the Romans and said, please put this man, Jesus, to death, he's a blasphemer, they would have said, I don't give a rip. It doesn't matter. We don't care. So the Jews are going to have to take a different route. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is they take more of a political route. They say this Jesus is a king and only Caesar is the king. So this guy is obviously just trying to be a rabble rouser and you better make an example of him. And that's the route that they go. Spoiler alert. But stay with me now. The fact that they put Jesus up on political charges causes the Romans to execute Jesus in a particular way. He died by crucifixion, right? Died on a cross. That was something that the Romans would use fairly commonly, maybe not every day, but fairly regularly. They would, 
they would crucify people, especially those who were big, notorious troublemakers or political uh, ne'er-do-wells, and they would crucify them fairly publicly so that if you were walking by and you'd see someone hanging on a cross, you would say, oh, I don't want to do whatever he did to get himself or herself up there. So I better just stay on the straight and narrow, right? So the Jews put Jesus up on these political charges. That leads to Jesus dying by crucifixion and not some other way, right? Because if you read in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of prophecies and predictions about the Messiah, Jesus, and how he specifically was to die. He couldn't just die any old way. He wasn't gonna die of natural causes. He wasn't gonna die in a car crash. It was gonna be by something like crucifixion. If you read, for instance, in Psalm 22, which was written a thousand years before Jesus ever lived, it talks about how they have pierced my hands and my feet. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. They pierced him with nails. Zechariah 12.10 says the same thing. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Say, the piercing, the nails, all that is super relevant. In Numbers chapter 21, that's like 1,500 years before Jesus lived, they had this whole thing. You can go and read it. There's this plague going on, and God says to Moses, put a serpent on a pole and lift it up, and whoever looks at the serpent on the pole, they'll live. And Jesus comes along later and says, just like that, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, right? Lifted up physically on a cross, on display like that. Furthermore, it says in the book of Deuteronomy that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, It says later in the scriptures that Jesus, who died on a tree, on a cross, he bore the curse for us. So you see what I mean? Jesus couldn't just die in any old way. It had to be pretty well like this. And you want to know what's really cool? Crucifixion, the way that Jesus died, it wasn't even invented yet when most of those prophecies were uttered at first. That's totally God. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. You stay with me now. I got you. If the Jews had been able to put Jesus to death, they would likely not have done so by crucifixion. That was pretty well a Roman thing. Matter of fact, it says in Leviticus 24, 16, the punishment for someone guilty of blaspheming is death by stoning. So let me just like capture all this for you so far. If Jesus had lived even a hundred years earlier, the Romans would not have been there So they wouldn't have crucified him. They literally wouldn't have been in the area. If this had happened even five years earlier, the Jewish people would have still legally been allowed to put Jesus to death themselves, but they couldn't. So it just so happened this way. All these random, disconnected, irrelevant facts and history and circumstances, they all work together to fulfill God's plan. This is God all over it right here. That was the history lesson. Give yourselves a hand. You did very well. Good job. Good job. Nobody fell asleep. That's good. Anyway, so just make note of that. God uses all this stuff to carry out his plan. All of it. All of it. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's continue on in the text. It says, it was early morning. So this has been going on all night. Jesus has been being led around and questioned. It's the whole thing. And now it's early in the morning. They themselves, the Jewish leaders, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled but could eat the Passover. Jewish tradition stated that if a Jewish person went into the building or underneath the roof of a Gentile person, they would be ceremonially unclean. 
ritually unclean. So even though this is in Jerusalem, a, a Jewish city, this is a Roman building, a Gentile building, the governor's headquarters, so they don't want to go in because they're in the middle of the feast of Passover and they don't want to be unclean ritually. By the way, it says so that they could eat the Passover. I don't know if you noticed this. Maybe that put a flag up in your mind. You say, hey, wait a minute. Didn't we already eat the Passover? John chapter 13. We read that like, I don't know, it's been a few months ago now. But we already had it. It was the night before. And many scholars contend about this, that what he's communicating is he's not just talking about eating the feast itself, but taking part in the festival. Passover was multiple days. It was a big to-do. These guys didn't want to go into this building and get defiled so that they couldn't take part in the party and the celebration. Anyway, the irony is here for these Jewish religious leaders because they are at this moment super concerned with following all the rules and being clean and being righteous, right? The irony is that they are trying at the same time to put an innocent man to death. And not only is he just some innocent man, he's the righteous one sent from God. And he's the only one that can actually make these guys righteous. So it's the irony is all through right there. And Pilate, in verse 29, he actually begins by the book. Unlike the Jewish leaders, he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? What did he do wrong? And look closely at the answer that the Jewish leaders give to him in verse 30. They say this, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, they don't even remotely answer his question. He asks them a simple, straightforward, black and white question, and they go shades of gray, they go dodgy, they, they take a left, they're trying to act in secret. This should have been a clue for Pilate right here that something wasn't right. Simple question, convoluted answer. Should have been a clue for him. Pilate seems to express his disinterest in this whole thing. He says in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. In other words, I'm not interested in this. And look at their reply. They say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But Jesus already had said, it was back in John 12, 32. He said that the son of man is gonna be lifted up. Prophesied and predicted about how he's gonna die. So even though there's these godless, hypocritical, corrupt leaders and all of this stuff going on, God is still working his plan. It's still happening exactly the way God is instructing it to happen. He's got foreknowledge. He is in control. So that's the Easter narrative so far. We, so, we good so far? Here's a couple of sidebars here. A couple of bonus points. Number one is this. In your life and in mine today, God still works through, watch my hands, the random the random, mysterious, otherwise disconnected circumstances that have nothing to do with each other on the surface, God uses all of those. By the way, remember someone got up and spoke Romans 8.28 earlier this morning? Here it is again. It says in that verse, God is gonna use all things. He's gonna use everything that happens in your life and in mine. And he's gonna do something with it. Only God can do that, by the way. Only God can take all these pieces that seem to have nothing to do with each other and make something of it. Only God. So I would encourage you this morning to take heart in the Lord. If you're having trouble trusting the Lord, you're fearful, you're anxious, God, I'm not sure you're gonna come through for me. This is literally what he does. And the cool thing about that Romans 8.28 is not only does God take all the pieces and all the mystery and all these disconnected things, and use them for something, what does he use it for? Our good. 
If you're a believer, God is going to use everything that's going on in your life, good or bad, and he's going to cause it and use it for your good. I don't know what you would call that. I would call that a promise in God's word. Then that's something we can take to the bank. Amen. So I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're wrestling with, but take courage this morning. God is on his throne. He's in control. He's the same God now as he was 2,000 years ago when he was in control then. So trust him. Let faith rise in this place in our Lord. Come on now. Second bonus point is this. Sin can make people a little dodgy. I didn't really know what the best word was to use, so we went with dodgy. But let me explain. Let's even talk just among believers. Let's just say among Christians here. As Christians, true or false, we still sin. That's true. That's true. And sometimes we sin and it's just a one-off and it was random and I don't know where that came from and maybe you noticed it right away and Lord, I'm sorry for that. I don't know what that was and you deal with it and you move on and that's the end of it. That's cool. Sometimes what can happen though as Christians is we can get ourselves caught up in sort of patterns of sin, more ongoing, sinister, maybe secret sin, doing stuff we shouldn't be doing, entertaining thoughts we shouldn't be camping out in, all that kind of stuff. You guys know about that. You've probably been there because that's sometimes what happens. And what happens when we're in that place of sin, the, the secret sin especially, a lot of times we buy into this lie of the enemy that says, don't you dare let that come out. Don't you dare let anyone see Keep this just to yourself. You wouldn't want anyone to look at you funny. Keep it secret. Hey, maybe God doesn't even see you. Well, that's a load is what it is. But that's what we do. I, I've done this. And we walk in the darkness and we keep that to ourselves. And sometimes what can happen is someone might notice something about you and say, hey, is everything okay? But when you're doing this, you say, yep, oh, everything's great. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, da, 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 da. But, but inside, right, you're dying. You've got this secret sin going on. And the reason that happens is because Jesus said this himself in John three twenty. It says, he who does wicked things hates the light and won't come into the light for fear that their works might be exposed. So if Satan has his hooks in you with some sin this morning and he's convincing you to keep it in the dark, you're buying into his scheme. By the way, I've got, well, I was gonna say bad news. It's actually good news. The way that God operates, these things mysteriously seem to find a way to the surface. Even if you've convinced yourself, no one's ever gonna know. Someone's probably gonna find out. That's just God. That's just how it happens. But let me, let me just, here's where I wanna go with this. This is for somebody today. I don't know who. One of the things that we're to do in and as the church is to love each other, Correct? That means a lot of things. One of the things that means is that we should be close enough to each other to notice when something funky is going on. When the oddities emerge. Hey, something seems off. What also can happen is the Holy Spirit can give you a word of knowledge about someone. Or some of you guys have the gift of discernment and you just kind of pick up on these things. Well, I would encourage you this morning don't just shrug that off. If the Lord gives you a word or there's just something about that person, don't just shrug it off and say, I must be wrong. You, you might be wrong. You, you might be. So I would encourage you though, if you're, if you're getting like a hunch, follow it. Pray about it. Pray, humble yourself before the Lord. Say, look, I, I'm not here to judge this person. I wanna help them. So Lord, I just humble myself. Give me the words, give me an opportunity. And then I would encourage you, go talk to that person. 
And don't go in guns blazing like, hey, I know what you've done. I know what you're involved in, right? Don't do it like that. Don't be a jerk. But you can say like, hey, like do it in private. Hey, is everything okay? You might have them right there. They might literally just burst out in front of you. I had that with someone within the last couple weeks. Is everything okay? And they just spilled their guts. Cool. If we get to that stage that quickly, great. And we can move on and we can deal with that. They might still resist. And you know what? You can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink. I'm not saying you like pin them to the ground and say, tell me or else. But I'm just saying, here's why we do this. Part of our ministry is to love each other. And it says in the book of James chapter 519 that when a brother or sister wanders from the truth, you get into some ground you shouldn't be into. Our job is to bring them back. So if you're getting a hunch or a leaning about somebody or a word about somebody, and it might seem like, oh, they're, they're into something they shouldn't be in. Listen, it could literally be the Lord giving you an opportunity to be a link in the chain of that person's recovery and restoration. So because you love them, have the talk, have the conversation, pray with them. Is this making sense? If something seems off, I'm encouraging you, you should, in a loving way, follow that lead. We good on that one? Okay. By the way, if you're the person this morning that's in that secret sin, give it up. Just give it up. Don't wait for someone to come to you. Go to the Lord. Run to the Lord. Approach his throne of grace with confidence. That's where this will get dealt with. Satan is convincing somebody up in here this morning to keep it in the dark. Don't keep it in the dark. Walk in the light, okay? Bring others into the fight. We're here to love and support each other. We're not here to look at each other and stomp each other out. Come on now. We all stumble in many ways. Good? Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep reading in our text Uh, We're going to talk about your world, see the hands, your world, and Jesus. The next section that we already read from verse 33 to 38, it's this really interesting back and forth between Jesus and Pilate, who was the Roman governor. Pilate starts out in verse 33. He says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, of what we read here in the Gospel of John, you'll notice that claim hasn't explicitly been made in front of Pilate yet, but we can assume that this is part of a bigger conversation. This is just a condensed version. This is what John's wanting us to to get here. So Pilate says, he has this knowledge that Jesus is allegedly the king of the Jews. And this language of king gets Pilate's attention, right? He doesn't care about Jewish traditions and and rituals and, and faith and all that, but the word king, That he's interested in. That's something that gets up into his world because he is there as the Roman governor representing the king, the emperor of Rome. And if someone was to come along and claim to be a king other than Caesar, well, he's got to do something about it. This is the world that Pilate lives in. Jesus asked him in verse 34, do you say this about me being a king of your own accord? I want to just stop there for just a second. Sometimes we can take this on in our lives we sort of assume someone else's faith in Christ onto ourselves. For instance, like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. My parents were Christians, so I must be. I went to church as a kid. I must be a Christian. I said a prayer before the meal or I went to a Christian funeral lately, so I must be. No, that's not how it works, right? You need to make the decision, right? It's great that you have examples from other people to look at, but you yourself, you need to decide. Who do I say that Jesus is? Am I gonna give my life and my heart to him? Okay, moving on. Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord? Pilate is not the least bit interested. 
He says, am I a Jew? It's your own nation and the chief priests that have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So here he goes right back into, what have you done? Who are you? What's going on? He's only interested in Jesus so far as it pertains to his world. You see that? Jesus answers him. See what Jesus does. He, he points him now to the eternal, spiritual things, heavenly things. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate is doing this. What does Jesus have to do with me? Does Jesus have any bearing on the four corners of my life? Do I have any little space in here in my life and in my routine that's got any bearing on him? But Jesus is saying, no, you gotta do this. Don't do this, do this here. My kingdom is not of the world. If it was, he says, my, my people would be fighting so that I wouldn't have been arrested. Remember last week, Peter did the ear thing. Jesus said, don't do that. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of the world. And Pilate, so that's a pretty big claim. You might think, oh, maybe the wheels would be spinning for him now. But look what he answers with. He goes right back to here. He goes, so you are a king. You're missing it. It's right there. So you are a king. He's right back into his worldly thinking. He's looking for that opportunity to stay shallow here. And Jesus, shockingly, points him this way again. In his answer, he says, for this purpose I came to bear witness to the truth. He's, he's pointing to something greater, trying to get Pilate's attention onto spiritual things. And he even doubles down. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In other words, that's a nice way of saying, if you were smart, you'd listen to me. And Pilate comes back. You think, oh, maybe Jesus would get him on that one. Pilate comes back with such an interesting response. In verse 38, he says, what is truth? Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Pilate asks, what is truth? Now, for me, as I've read that over the years, I've always kind of read that as though Pilate is expressing a genuine curiosity. Like Jesus finally just got him with something and now the light bulb's on. Hey, what's truth? Tell me more about this truth you're talking about. But the more I've read this and researched it and you look at the context of everything else that Jesus is saying, and that Pilate is saying, it seems more likely that he's being flippant and dismissive. Truth, what, is tru what does truth have to do with anything? Why are you bringing truth into the equation? Isn't truth just relative? Isn't truth just what you make it? What are you talking about? That's likely what he's doing here with Jesus. And the irony should not be lost on us here either because Pilate is asking all these questions and saying all of these things Staying shallow, though Jesus is trying to point him somewhere else. But if Pilate asks this question, what is truth, a little bit differently, if he asks this with a little bit of a different heart, he's actually asking the most important question in the world. Yeah. Instead of trying to brush Jesus off. What is truth? The reality is there is such thing as objective truth in this life. It's not just what you make it. It's not just how you feel today. It's not even just based on your own experience. The objective truth is found right here. The objective truth is this. God made you. All things were made by him and for him. You were made by God and you were made for God to be in a relationship with God, to walk with him, to be close to him, to worship him with your whole life. That is literally why you're here on this planet. In case you were wondering, in case you'd forgotten, just let me tell you that. 
We were made to be close to God, have this relationship with him. But we've all sinned, the Bible says. The truth is that we, by our unrighteousness and our rebellion, we have separated ourselves from God. We have made it impossible for ourselves to just walk into God's presence and say, here I am, let's walk together. No, our sin is like scarlet. It's evil. It's wickedness. And God is perfect. So the two can't be together. But the truth is this. Even though we are all sinners and we cannot save ourselves and we have rendered ourselves unrighteous before God, God loves you very much. Turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you very much. Okay, now say it again like you mean it. God loves you very much and he proved that that while you were still a sinner, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die in your place for your sin even though he had no sin of his own. He came into our mess. He didn't have any mess. He came to clean up your filth. He didn't have any filth. And Jesus on the cross, he took on the full weight of God's wrath for our sin, our sin, not his own. And he died there as a sacrifice and a substitute so that we would not have to die. He took on our punishment so that we would not have to be punished. He took our unrighteousness so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. He did all of this so that we could be saved and set free and born again and made new and brought into relationship with God, being called a child of God so that you could walk with God and then have the promise of spending eternity with God. God. That is the truth of God's word. Somebody give him praise for it today. And Pilate, it's right there. Literally the truth is standing right in front of him and he misses it. Friends, the truth is staring you in the face too. Don't miss it. You need Jesus. You need to walk with Jesus. Maybe you're already a Christian and you say, there, I'm good. I'm gonna sit on the side. I'm just gonna twist. No, you need to walk with, keep your eyes on and set your hands to the work of the kingdom of Jesus. We all need Jesus. That is the truth. Let's do a couple of bonus points before we do the last bit of our text. Number one is this. We've seen it in here. God wants to meet you where you are. He wants to meet you where you are. I thank God that the message of the gospel is not, here's God saying, here I am. Now you just clean yourself up, make yourself right, get your house in order, and then you can come to me. That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is come to Jesus just as you are, and then he'll change you, and then he'll work on you. Then you can walk with him. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference there? And you can see it in here. Look, he meets Pilate right in his world. Talking politics, judicial system, talking about king and all that. He's trying to meet Pilate right where he's at. And some people in our day, regrettably, they take on this posture of, hey, my life has nothing to do with Jesus. Here's here's my life in these neat four corners. Here's my routine, my family, my stuff, my job. And I got no room in there for Jesus. I'm not going to give up this life and throw it all away and go and sit in a monastery somewhere with my legs crossed so that I can have Jesus in my life. Well, that's not the message at all. That's not what Jesus says at all. He wants to come into your world. I want you to picture in your mind's eye right now what your world looks like, the things that you do, 
the places you go, the people you see, the job that you work at, the family that you live with, whatever it is, the car that you drive, whatever, that is your world. Jesus wants to be involved in that in your life. You say, even this part over here that doesn't really seem like it has anything to do? Yes, even that part. Because that's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus does. He wants to meet with us in the everyday. He wants to meet with us when we're on the mountain. He wants to meet with us when we're in the valley. And he wants to meet with us when we're on the plain, in everything. And God has been doing this all throughout history, too. This is not a new thing. God meeting people just where they're at. For instance, let me give you some Bible figures here. Moses, right? He met the Lord when he was sitting in a nice church building on a Sunday morning, right? No. Moses, when God called him, he was in the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness because he had murdered a man and he ran away. And while he was on the run, God spoke to him and met with him in his everyday where he was at. Gideon is another one in the book of Judges. Gideon was this fearful, cowardly, scaredy cat. He was hiding in a wine press, threshing out wheat because he was scared of the Midianites. And that's where God called him. He's not, he not on a mountaintop experience. That's in his everyday. Samuel is another one. God called Samuel when he was asleep. That's where that all started. God came to David when David was out in the sheep field, sheepfold. He was shepherding. He was shepherding sheep. I said that about as badly as I could say it. You're welcome. He was out in the field with the sheep, just doing his job. That was his everyday routine. And that's where God showed up and met with him. Uh, another one, Peter. Peter's a good example. Someone read it this morning. Peter was a fisherman. He's in the fishing boat. He's mending his net. Jesus shows up and calls him and he leaves everything and goes to follow Jesus. Levi, Matthew is another one. He was a tax collector sitting at the tax booth. Jesus showed up to him. Another one, Zacchaeus, right? He's climbed up a tree and Jesus sees him and calls him. Another one, Saul, who later became Paul. You remember when Jesus called him and met with him first. It was when he was on the road to Damascus. What was he doing? He was going there with letters that he could imprison other Christians with and have them sentenced to jail and maybe death. This guy's in the middle of sin and Jesus shows up and wants to meet with him there. I wonder in your life, where are you keeping Jesus out and where does he want to meet with you in your life today? Guarantee there's something. And here's the cool part. When you allow Jesus in, Bible says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When you humble yourself and give Jesus access to your life, every part of your life, that is where you start to know and discover and experience what true life is and true joy is and true peace is and true fulfillment is. It's when you give yourself to him. Make sense? Second bonus point before we move on is this. God wants you to have a heavenly perspective. Somebody say heavenly perspective. And that heavenly perspective affects earthly things. So often, we are just concerned with the things of this world, aren't we? What am I gonna eat? What am I gonna wear? Am I making enough money? Am I gonna afford this thing? What kind of car am I gonna drive? Uh, what kind of relationship am I looking for with somebody? Uh, all this stuff. How, how's the world going with politics? Where's that all gonna go? The whole thing, we trouble ourselves with many things. And Jesus gives us this here with Pilate. Pilate's the same way. He's concerned only about his world and his stuff. And how does Jesus pertain to me? And Jesus keeps redirecting him to the bigger picture, the spiritual picture, the, the eternal picture. 
in your life when your first priority, when your first concern is the things of the world, whatever it is, your hope and your confidence and your pursuit are in the wrong place. And you are building not on a solid rock, but on sinking sand. Because all these things of the world can change, they can disappear just like this. And if your house, if your hope is built on those things, if that's where your feet are planted, you're gonna get carried away in the tide as well. But in contrast, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First, seek that. In other words, when we establish ourselves in the things of God first, when we make our pursuit the things of God first, for instance, like, hey, if you're a Christian, I'm saved in him. I am saved from my sins. I've been born again. I want to walk with Jesus. My identity is in Christ. He has given me good works to do, kingdom works to do. And I'm looking ahead to the day when he comes back because this world is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven. When we establish ourselves in kingdom principles like this, it makes all the difference. Because Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and then all that other stuff is gonna be added. All those worldly things you're worried about, Jesus is gonna take care of those. He's not gonna let your foot stumble. He's not gonna make, he's gonna make sure you don't go without. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. You don't have to freak out. Set your mind on things that are above and the rest will mysteriously fall into place because that's God. I don't know where your priorities are at this morning, but hear the word of the Lord on that. It really does make all the difference. That's why the Bible always comes back to this, set your mind, be renewed in your mind, be transformed in your mind because what you set your mind on, what perspective you have really makes all the difference. It can be the difference between you being a worried, fearful soul to being a confident, strong, steadfast, hopeful, joyful soul. You make the choice. What do you want to see in your life? There it is, right there. Last bit of this text. We're gonna talk about the coward's way out. This won't be the least bit offensive. I can probably not promise you that. A coward is somebody who knows what the right thing to do is, but they lack the courage to do it. So they buckle and they cave and they give in. And that is what we see Pilate starting to do in this text. Pilate is a guy that has a lot of responsibility here. I don't really envy his position. You got this mob, the goon squad, yelling and screaming to arrest this guy. And if an uprising happens, it's gonna kind of look bad on Pilate. So it's not like a great place to be in. But the point is this, he knows the right thing to do. But he lacks the courage to do it. In verse 38, he comes back out to the crowd after questioning Jesus. And he says, I find no guilt in him. No guilt. So you would think a man of any judicial position and sense would go, okay, he's innocent. I better release him. But it says in verse 39, Pilate says, but, I read that, I said, what do you mean, but? I find no guilt in him, but. <laughs> like, what is that? I need a drink, that's what it is. There should be no but about this at all. He's innocent, period. Let him go. But you have a custom 
that I should release to you one prisoner each year at Passover. The Passover goes all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 12. And if you remember that first Passover, the whole point of that was God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. Now here stands an innocent person who's been arrested and Pilate has the opportunity to rescue him, to release him. And the Jews are completely off in left field. They completely miss it. And Pilate, watch how Pilate says this in verse 39. He says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? What do you mean, do you want me? This is your job. Doesn't matter what they want. (coughs) This is the right thing to do. You gotta just do it. But he's a coward. And he puts this into the hands of the people instead of taking ownership of what's his responsibility. He wants to come out with clean hands. Hey, I didn't sentence him to death. I didn't say crucify him. It's the people that did that. That's spineless, cowardly. And of course, the Jews are all over this. In verse 40, they say, no, not him, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. It says in other places that he was an insurrectionist. That's like a political troublemaker. It also says in other places that he was a murderer. Okay, so let me get this straight. Should we release Jesus, who's innocent, and can't be found at fault for any crime, or should we release the known insurrectionist robber and murderer? I think we need to think and pray about this one for a while, right? It's obvious what should be done. But this is God's plan. This is the way God has ordained this to work. Even through the hands of these corrupt, spineless, cowardly people, God's plan is coming to fruition. That's the thread woven all through the Easter story. Two bonus points, and then I'm out. Number one is this. And don't throw anything at me when I say this. (laughs) Take responsibility in your life. Pilate here has this clear responsibility. He is in the position to make the decision, and he totally flakes out. Don't do the same thing in your life. God has placed you where you are in your life right now in this season for a reason. He has planted you in the particular soil you are in on purpose. With your circumstances, with your life situation, with the gifts that he's given you, with the experiences that he's given you, everything, you're here for a reason. And it's your responsibility to work the field you're planted in. But so oftentimes we say, that's somebody else's problem. I don't want to work. I don't want to raise my family. I don't want to serve in the church. I don't want to be a contributor to the kingdom. We'll let somebody else do that. And that is cowardly. That's the very definition of cowardly. You've got to own it. Your life. Listen, even if your life is a mess this morning... I love you, but it's time to pull your socks up and own it. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And greater is he living in you than he who is in the world. So none of this sitting around and letting it be someone else's problem, okay? Yes, maybe you need people to come alongside you and help you. Great, take the initiative. Go ask somebody. Start taking responsibility in your life. Don't just let the world pass you by. God has given you an opportunity to make a difference in this life. God has given you gifts 
He's giving you people that, that, are, that you have influence over. Don't squander that. Use that. Own it. Take responsibility in your life because a failure to do that, to just say, no, nah, I'm good. It's like the guy in Matthew 25. No, I've been given some of y'all can't see my head. That was the best part of the sermon for you. The guy says, oh, you've been giving me all this stuff. I'm gonna just bury it in the ground and sit on it like this. And you know what the guy says to him? You wicked, lazy servant. Let's not be those people. Let's be the people in contrast that God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because I planted you in a field and you worked that field and you were faithful. You make the choice. What do you want in your life? The choice is yours. The second thing is this, ties right in with it. God wants us to be people of integrity. Somebody say integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing no matter what. It's doing the right thing no matter who is watching, no matter if you're in public or in private, you're gonna do the same thing. It's doing the right thing even when it hurts you, even when it costs you. That is integrity. And that is obviously not what Pilate is exercising in this text. But yet here we are, and God is calling us to this. And you know what it starts with? This is a whole sermon unto itself on integrity. Let me just say this. We live in a world that is fallen and dark and wicked. There is temptation at every turn to not act as people of integrity. And if this is the path we're supposed to walk, there's temptation to to, to hang a left all over the place. It's really easy to not be a person of integrity. That's the easy path. But God is calling you to be faithful and to be steadfast and to do the right thing no matter what. And you know what it starts with? It starts with this declaration and confession. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No matter what. I don't care if the culture is moving farther and farther away from God. I don't care if it's taboo to talk about Jesus. I don't care if it's wrong in the eyes of the culture to do, say, think, believe this, whatever this is. I don't care if people look at me funny. I don't care if I get ridiculed. I don't care if it costs me. I'm gonna do what God wants me to do. That is integrity. I trust that was for somebody today. I don't know who, but for whoever that was for, uh, you're welcome on behalf of the Lord. Okay. Let's wrap this up. This this is the Easter story. Jesus going to the cross to die for us. And man, we are privileged to be able to just go through it like this and take our sidebars and do our bonus points and our detours. But I hope and I pray that in this season for you, it will not be lost on you all that Jesus has done for you. It won't be lost on you what he went through for you. This was not his... This was not his problem. He made it his problem for you. This was not his mess. It was your mess and mine. And the plot is gonna thicken. We're gonna see this just go even deeper and deeper and get more and more intense over the next couple weeks. But let it be known, God loves you this much that he would give of himself for you.